Good morning. Before we begin, I'd like to welcome guests from the uh, Middle Temple Inn of Court of the United Kingdom, as well as our friends from UNC Law School. Uh, in attendance with us today, we have Lord and Lady Lloyd Jones, along with other guests from the Middle Temple. Uh, and from the UNC Law School, we have others, including Rebecca Howell. Uh, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. I understand there'll be a moot court competition later. Uh, best wishes. Our first case this morning is North Carolina Farm Bureau Mutual Insurance Company versus Herring, and we will hear from the appellant. May it please the court, Mr. Chief Justice, Associate Justices. My name is Robert Levin. I'm with Haywood, Denny, and Miller Attorneys in Durham. I represent the plaintiff appellant, North Carolina Farm Bureau Mutual Insurance Company, and I would like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal, please. This case is an appeal by Farm Bureau of both the trial court and the Court of Appeals decision affirming the trial court granting summary judgment for the defendants in the declaratory judgment action that was filed by Farm Bureau seeking a determination of whether or not Cassie Herring, a defendant in this case, was a resident of her mother's household on April 19th of 2019. And this is important and not just about summary judgment, but whether a party can have a trial by jury to decide the facts of a case when, as is apparent from this record, we would contend there are facts in dispute. Rule 56 very clearly states that facts are to be construed in the light most favorable to the non-moving party which for the purposes of the defendant's motion for summary judgment would be Farm Bureau. This court reviews the facts de novo as you've held many times. Cassie Herring was injured in a motor vehicle accident in 2019 as I've said. She filed a claim against the tortfeasor, and the carrier for the tortfeasor, which just so happened to be Farm Bureau, tendered its liability limits. Ms. Herring then sought UIM coverage under a policy of insurance issued to her parents, Ruth and Curtis Herring. It was during that litigation that Farm Bureau learned that there were questions regarding residency and filed this declaratory judgment action. During the course of this action that's here before you today, the facts were uncovered as follows. That Ms. Herring stated that she lives with her father, that she has her driving license with the state of North Carolina using her father's address. She obtains and uses that address for her mailings, 
she pays taxes in wake county she votes in johnston county her doctors are all in the wake county area the facts as shown in the record further indicate that her mother who's a resident of durham county provides no financial support whereas her mother well, i'm sorry who's disabled whereas her father provides supports for the claimant so based on these facts farm bureau filed the declaratory judgment action the matter came on for summary judgment and just on the eve of summary judgment the defendants filed affidavits conflicting with some of the statements made by Ms. Herring as to where she lives in terms of getting mail and who provides financial support. The matter came on for hearing before the trial judge, Judge Collins. Judge Collins denied Farm Bureau's motion for summary judgment and found for the defendants finding that Cassie Herring was a resident of her mother's household at the time. The Court of Appeals affirmed with a dissent, which is why you have this case here today. Now, as noted by the dissent, there was conflicting evidence in the record. However, the Court of Appeals held that this con con conflicting evidence should be construed not in the light most favorable to the non-moving party, Farm Bureau, but instead to the moving party, Ms. Herring. And this is contrary to North Carolina law. Can I ask you a question about your argument that there's conflicting evidence? Yes. Is that based on an assumption that um, under North Carolina law, uh, she can only be a resident of one household? This court has never ruled that an adult who is not a college student or in the military can have two residents. And I realize it's a court of appeals decision, but the Burton case, which is almost exactly on all points in, as this case is, talks about how they publicly represent to the world where they are living. Right, but on the question of whether or not um, she could actually be a resident of both her mother and her father's household, um, our, our other cases have involved people who are over the age of 18, but just either at school or in the military. So why wouldn't we also treat someone who I believe the facts are uncontested, is disabled and unable to maintain, has never, as a, since becoming over 18, has never maintained her own household and is not capable of maintaining her own household, why wouldn't we also say that that person potentially could have two residences, one with her mother and one with her father? Well, potentially they could, but she has made it very clear in her examination under oath that she has lived with her father and the visits to her mother are nothing more than family visits. So, so you do allow that she could potentially 
under our law be a resident of two households, but you contend that the evidence shows she, ne she actually wasn't a resident of her mother's house. I believe that to be correct, Your Honor. I think you could. There certainly are, could be situations. You could be homeless and going from place to place, but that's not the case here. Her personal effects were with her father. Her voting address, her vote, she used her, the father's address for voting, to pay taxes, for insurance for her car, to register her car, for her driver's license, all the things that are connected with showing the world where you live are all to the father's address. There's absolutely nothing to the mother's address. So I, I, let me, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, go ahead. I wanted to jump in here because I, um, the, the focus on the, all the evidence that she was a resident of her father's home seems to be not what the dissent was focused on. Uh, what the dissent was focused on. So I want to I want to ask you just at a high level if you agree with me about there's so many summary judgment uh, decisions in our case law, but I, I think you can harmonize it all into a principle. I want to see if you agree with me that this is a principle. So if you had a scenario where someone submits an affidavit, a defendant, motion for summary judgment, and so for example, this, the the only fact question in the case is you know was the traffic light green, and the affidavit says yes, I could see it clearly the traffic light was green, and that is the only evidence that exists. So the plaintiff offers no counter to that affidavit. Summary judgment would be granted even though the defendant could be lying about that. But we will accept that if that's the only evidence. Do you, do you agree with that? Absolutely. And then, but there's, there's another step, which is if there's something, even if the only testimony comes from the defendant's sworn statements, if there's something in those statements that creates inconsistencies and raises questions of credibility, then we will not allow summary judgment. So for example, if there was a deposition and then an affidavit at summary judgment, and in the deposition, the driver said, it was a foggy, rainy day, but I could see that the light was green. Then it, in an affidavit says, it was a very, it was a sunny day, perfectly clear, I could see clearly it was green. You, you might argue, well, th there's a question now about whether this person actually remembers what happened because it's of the inconsistencies. I read that to be what the dissent was getting at in this case is that there were just some inconsistencies in the testimony enough to create a fact question about whether she lived with her mother. She and, and that's the only issue that we have before us now. Is you agree I, with that? I, I agree with that. So I, what are the absolutely. inconsistencies then that, it, it, that the, you you see? As to what the affidavit showed? Right. What would be the fact what are the credibility issues that are the fact questions that a jury would decide in this case about? There's Protest. a question about, she said she, she got no mail at her mother's house, that she used her father's address totally. They submitted affidavits just on the eve of the hearing that said she got mail at the father's house. The only piece of mail, coincidentally, in the record is the MedPay check the Farm Bureau sent based on the, the uh, claim for MedPay. Other than that, there's nothing else in the record. That, and in fact, the defendant's, Cassie Herring's own testimony was she never got mail. Financial support. In the um, deposition, she said that her mother provided no financial support to her. In fact, that she's disabled. The affidavit said, oh, she gets financial support from her mother and stepfather. So those are just a couple of them. Well, I just want to better understand the record. I, I read it as, and the first is a question for you. So if she says in one part, to a question, in 2019, did you receive any mail at your mother's house? And the answer is, I don't think so. No, sir. You take that as a categorical denial that she received mail in 2019. I, 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 think, it's, I think it's pretty good evidence that she, she did not get mail at her 
her mother's house, and if it's not, then that's a question for a jury to decide whether that's believable or not, not for the fact, not for a judge. I just want to understand what if you what the rel the significance of that hedging you think is, and then she did get um, her. She did testify that her mom paid her cell phone bill, right? She was on. The, I think she said her her mother or cell her stepfather were, were on the cell. They were on the same family plan. I, yes. But that wasn't her father paying that. Uh, that was not her father. Okay. And it, we know that she did get at least some mail at her house, at her mother's house, right? Because Farm Bureau mailed. Oh, we had one piece of mail. I know, but I just want to, I, I thought I heard you say never anything, but we do know there was one piece. The med pay check. That's correct. Thank you. That's correct. So is, is there anything in the evidence that, that contradicts her claim that she spent roughly a total of four months per year at her mother's house? There's not. So uh, one thing I'm sort of struggling with is n none of the inconsistencies that you've pointed out uh, d go directly to that issue. Are, are you saying that because there are inconsistencies with respect to other issues that her claim that she stayed with her mother roughly four months out of the year, that that claim is in question and would be for a jury to, to resolve? I, th I think the question is whether there are genuine issues of material fact. And our case law talks about uh, visits that are just family visits that does not make one a resident as opposed to actually being a resident of a household. So I think a, a jury, when you take everything in totality, could look at that and question the validity of that testimony and said that those are just family visits and maybe they aren't four months given these other inconsistent, inconsistent statements. If you say that your mother is not supporting you at all and is disabled and then you tr turn around later and say with an affidavit that oh yes she is and I, I and I think a, a telling statement in the a plaintiff's uh, I'm sorry in the defendant's brief when they're talking trying to explain away how she testified that it, at no time this is on page eight of the def defendant's brief at no time did Miss Herring appreciate that her responses to these questions some 19 months after the crash and only four weeks before the agreed upon arbitration proceeding would then be used by Farm Bureau to attack the coverage it had already agreed upon and partially paid. So in other words, if she had known that there were questions about residency, she would have changed her tune. And I think a jury should decide whether or not her testimony based and compared to the later submitted affidavits is consistent. And I would argue. I've mentioned what it seemed to me is what the dissent focused on most, which was uh, the way that she phrased how she, the relationship with that residence. So, for example, the, the dissent pointed out that she said she didn't keep any clothes there. So it may be true that she, a total of four months, she would sleep there. But it's, it would be odd to say you have a residence somewhere when you, in order to stay there, you bring your clothes. Then the dissent pointed out that in just referring to how she would go to that residence, she would say, I'm going to see my mom, which I believe the dissent interpreted, say, a, a reasonable jury might conclude that was, is not how you would refer to going to your own home or your own residence, and that 
was an indication that in her mind, even if she would often stay there, she was going to see someone to someone else's residence, not to her own. Uh, do you, are, do you, are you focused that. on that? Because you've been talking a lot about other things that the dissent didn't really seem to think mattered. I, I think that that goes to the heart of the issue as to whether it's a fam, family, family visit, which are questions for a jury to decide. Now, the, the Burton case, which I argued and argued at the trial court, is almost on point as to this case held that it wasn't a resident of the other parent's household just because they go in and just see him for, for a visit. And I, th I think the dissent th does a good job of, of raising those questions, which a reasonable jury could then say, she doesn't live there. She goes and visits there. And that's why I was discussing the, the doctors, the driving, uh, driver's license, the, the, the mail. That's why the mail is so important, just because you get a piece of mail. One can get mail at an address they lived in years ago because of the postal office. That doesn't mean you live somewhere. Uh, counselor, I'd like to circle back to uh, a point that um, Justice Allen was exploring about the four months and assuming that would be true. Um, can you help me um, reconcile that with the fact that the contract for insurance just says resident and it is not, it doesn't say primary residence, nor does it uh, define residence. Uh, and I understand there could be a credibility issue, but let's set that aside right now. I don't hear any focus about the four months or how this contract is being construed. Could you please help me understand how that fits in, in all of this? I think our, our cases have, have held that you have to look at the intent of, the, of a, the person. And the four months is some evidence that she was a resident of her mother's household. But there is contrary evidence that she was not. So I think for the purposes of where we are in this litigation, those are questions for a jury to decide. Because if you're just going to stay somewhere and visit somebody, you can visit for a couple nights of week to go see them, especially if their mother's not well, which would the evidence would be in this case, doesn't mean you live there. But isn't it true that in this contract, it does say resident and it's, uh, and we don't know if it means primary or secondary or whatever. Um, and uh, at least under our uh, jurisprudence in North Carolina, any uh, ambiguity such as that would be construed in the favor of the uh, of of the of of the uh, other party, uh, the insured. Uh, but it's your position that we don't get there yet because of these credibility issues. Can you help me understand how this fits in the grand scheme of things? Exactly, because there is some evidence that Miss Herring was living there. But there's contrary evidence that she was not. And so in the, taking the evidence in the light most favorable to the non-moving party, that's a question of fact. And if there are any issues as to credibility, that's not for the judge to decide. That's for a jury to decide. And I think the dissent talks about that a lot. Talks about the contradictory evidence, talks about the credibility issues and how it's not the position of the courts to decide those things. That is for the fact finder. 
And while I agree with Your Honor that term resident is not, is not defined and it is very fact specific, it's for the jury to decide those facts. And so that's why we believe that the ruling of Judge Collins was improper based on the contradictory evidence. Thank you. And just for a moment going back to what sort of qualifies as contradictory evidence in this context, um, if we allow that she could have two residences, that she could reside with her father, um, and but she could also reside with her mother for four months, then isn't the only question whether there's any evidence creating um, a, a, a conflict in the facts over whether she actually lived at her mother's or just visited her mother? I think that's part of it. This, this court, in our case law, as far as I can tell, and I don't believe it's been cited by opposing counsel, there has never been a case that I've seen in which a competent adult, not a college student, as I said earlier, or not someone who just got out of the military, has ever been found to have two residents. Well, uh, oh, my apologies. Um, well, to follow up on your term competent adult, there's certainly, uh, from what I can tell, undisputed uh, evidence in the record that this person is disabled and is not holding down a job. So I do take issue with the point of competent. Uh, I don't think we know, know that to be true. Well, competency in terms of there's been no legal guardian appointed. Right. I understand that, but, uh, but still, uh, this, this person does have special circumstances. But, but again, in her deposition, she never even mentioned that. That was not brought up until the affidavit, which was submitted a day or two before our hearing. But that affidavit uh, in this kind of proceeding would be, would be in the record. It is in the record. I'm, I'm not saying it's not. And certainly it's some evidence, but I don't think it's conclusive. And I, I, again, that goes to a credibility issue about whether she is competent or not competent. Well, let me turn my question into somewhat of a hypothetical. Let's assume that we say it's possible for, for a dependent, such as this woman, let's assume we agree she was a dependent, could reside with both of her parents who are now divorced with one parent part of the time, another parent the other part of the time. She testifies in her deposition um, when asked, um, she says that she had a room at her mother's house, question, do you keep any clothing there? Yes, sir, sometimes. Then he asks, what do you mean by sometimes? She explains that she and her mother um, wear the same clothes. But my question is, in light of that testimony, we don't have any testimony, for example, from a neighbor who says, actually, no, she was never here overnight. She came and visited during the day, but she left that evening. Or actually, she doesn't have a room in the house. Um, that's, they, they, you know, they only have one bedroom, and that's just not true, right? We don't have that kind of conflicting evidence in the record, right? I agree, we do not. So, so you're saying that um, it, it's fair to question her credibility based on, on what? the totality of her testimony versus what those affidavits say. And you can't use affidavits to contradict earlier testimony. That's pretty cut and dried in our state. And I think that's what they've done. And I think the dissent points that out. And because of that, there are issues that only the fact finders can decide, credibility and believability. And what's the specific conflict between the affidavits and the testimony? Things about support. In the uh, 
deposition she said her mother did not support her that her mother was disabled that's the only evidence of any disability in this case i mean we know that the miss cassie herring is driving we know she has she votes we know she goes to the doctor we know she has her own insurance policy separate and apart from this farm bureau policy all which lists her father's address so those are some of the things your honor that that are in the record well and again i what i saw the dissent on that particular issue focused on were the particular things she said like i don't have any clothes there which would a reasonable jury hear that and say how can you reside four months and we're not a close there or the statement about you know what do you do i go to see my mother and a reasonable jury saying that is not how you would describe going to your own residence where you also live with your mom there would be a, a, a natural way if you thought that that was your home as well that you would refer to it and again that may not be uh there may be an explanation for that but it creates enough of a question about credibility that a jury not a judge should decide it um and and so i guess my question for you is are we if that's the issue the dissent was focused on can we even reach the other things that you've mentioned here in your argument so for example you're making an argument that we've never really held beyond the you know service members and and the college students i didn't see the dissent talking about that at all i don't think there's a pdr in this case so what are we actually you know no, i think you hit the nail on the head i was just responding to the questions about those other issues i think the issue is here is whether or not summary judgment was properly granted on this record when you take the evidence in the light most favorable to the non-moving party which would be farm bureau we would contend that the dissent had it right that there are issues of credibility and conflicting evidence which should not have been ruled upon by the judge decided by the judge and affirmed by the majority of the court of appeals that those are issues for the fact finder so i would agree with your honor uh, if there are no further questions, I would like to reserve the rest of my time. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, my name is Hunt Willis, and I represent the appellees in this case. Um, we would ask that this court affirm the Court of Appeals majority ruling. The existing precedent of this court and the Court of Appeals with respect to UIM residency interpretations in an insurance contract plainly and abundantly support the Court of Appeals majority opinion, and to the extent that they do not, uh, from this court's interpretation, the particular conduct by the insurer in this case would be grounds for this court to stop them from divesting Ms. Herring from coverage in any event. Your Honors, I'd, I'd like to begin with what was Justice Dietz's questions uh, because it spoke to the first portion of my argument, which is what is the remedy? What is the remedy that is sought 
by Farm Bureau in this case. Because Farm Bureau came to the trial court on their own motion for summary judgment. They went to the trial court, they filed their motion first in this declaratory action, and they told the trial judge there's no issue of fact in this case. We win as a matter of law, there, aren't, there are no genuine issues of, of fact. There's no dispute, that's what they told the judge. That was what predicated their motion. Was Under that before or after affidavits were filed? Before, Your Honor. So they, at that point, they would not have uh, known what might be revealed in an affidavit? That's correct. They did not have the affidavits at the time they filed their motion for summary judgment. Would they have been correct at that point based on the evidence that they were aware of that there was no issue of material fact? Yes. And they and the reason is they were served with the affidavits before the hearing and they didn't change their argument and say never mind now that i've seen these affidavits prior to this hearing your honor we 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 withdraw our motion we need to have a jury trial there's an issue of fact they didn't argue that they didn't change their argument more importantly when they did not prevail at the summary judgment hearing and they appealed to the intermediate appellate courts they did not argue to the intermediate appellate courts wait a second, we need a jury trial on this issue. They appealed as a matter of law, they should have prevailed. They wanted the appellate courts to reverse the trial court as a matter of law with respect to the residency interpretation as it applied to the facts of this case. They did not go to the appellate court and say, we need a jury trial. So now for the first time on appeal to this court, certainly based on the dissent, which I'll get to in a moment, we needed, they, their argument is we need a jury trial. So this is the first time in this case that this party has said we have to have a jury trial on residency. Their position has been there is no genuine issue of fact. But now they say there is. And they say there is, I would submit, because of the reasoning in the dissent, which is the procedural posture and how we came here today. <clears throat> the dissent in this case uh, finds, and it was discussed earlier, and I want to address that in the beginning, that immediately, and it's important to note, the first thing that the dissenting opinion states in this case is that they should not prevail. Counsel, before, before you yes. go on, I just want to make sure I understand the conclusion you were asking us to, to reach in your comments. Are you suggesting that um, the issue of whether there's a genuine issue of material fact isn't properly before us? No, Your Honor. I'm suggesting that all along in this case that their argument has been that there isn't one. And today it appears their argument is that there is. So what, what should we draw from that? That they have argued at the trial court and the, the appellate courts that there is no genuine issue of material fact. And to the extent this court reaches the merits of this case, it should on the residency issue. It should not uh, remand this case to the trial setting for a jury trial on whatever factual issue that they contend needs to be resolved, that it should reach the merits of the residency issue. Um, and the dissent, uh, to my point uh, about the dissenting opinion, the dissent is predicated on essentially two issues. They have the, the Bruton case that they contend uh, suggests that um, this case, uh, well, let me back up. The dissent initially states that 
Farm Bureau should have lost their motion for summary judgment. It's very clear that the dissent does not, does not take issue with the majority opinion that Farm Bureau should have lost their motion for summary judgment. The dissent says, however, there's an inconsistency between her examination under oath and an affidavit. I argue there is not, but that's the dissent's conclusion. And because of that, a jury needs to resolve a credibility issue. That's the, essentially what the dissent says. So Justice Dietz's hypothetical before was to what extent that does genuinely create a credibility issue and his hypothetical about green lights versus no other evidence. But that's telling because there is no other evidence in this case. Uh, Justice Earl's hypothetical about a neighbor submitting an affidavit that says, I see everybody in the driveway that comes and goes in that house. I know who Cassie is. She hasn't been in this house in 10 years. Was actually the example that I was going to submit to the court as what would be competing evidence to create a genuine issue of fact. So in the dissent, um, this court's decision in Kid v. Early is decided, or excuse me, is discussed. And uh, it's this, what's discussed there or, or dealt with in that case is when it's appropriate to grant a motion for summary judgment based solely on um, the uh, representations of the party that's moved for summary judgment. And, and one of the things that, that Kidd says the court should look at is whether there are only latent doubts as to the affiant's uh, credibility. Um, so are, are you saying that there are only latent doubts or there are no doubts or your Honor, there are no doubts. Um, this is an important point in this case. Setting aside, for example, the timeline and the manner in which this carrier treated this claimant, which is significant in this case, four weeks before the summary proceeding was set, that would have been the underinsured motorist arbitration that was going to decide all the issues and be final in this case. The only issues of dispute in this case would have been damages at that proceeding. At the end of that proceeding, the panel's decision would have been final. It's not subject to appeal. They agreed to that date. They spent 20 months working towards that proceeding after making multiple judicial admissions that Ms. Herring was, in fact, an insured under this insurance contract, both in a filed answer in the Superior Court and in a consent order signed by a Superior Court judge, all of which judicially admitting this carrier that she was an insured entitled to these benefits. <clears throat> Four weeks before the summary proceeding, they asked her to sit for an examination under oath. It is significant, I submit to the court, that, they, that she did not sit for a Rule 26 deposition, that she did not sit for a proceeding in which she is subject to cross-examination, a proceeding in which her counsel can preserve the manner of the question for review later. An examination under oath is a tool that is used by insurance companies to put an insured under oath and answer questions about essentially whatever they'd like to ask. The purpose of which is to investigate a claim. Claims are investigated on a host or for a host of reasons, not the least of which could be, is there a defense to coverage? So are, are you saying, <clears throat> because what I asked you is, does the record create more than latent doubts about credibility. Are, are you saying that uh, there, there are uh, no 
significant doubts raised by the record because uh, what Ms. Herring said was not in her under oath was was under examination was not inconsistent with the affidavit or are you saying there are inconsistencies but they should be discounted because of the method of examination I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what point you're trying to make yes your honor I'm taking too long to answer your question they, the methodology is what I'm getting at and the reason I get to that is because these these residency issues and these UIM cases come up all the time immediately when the claim is made the carrier is under a statutory duty, as discussed in Chapter 58 of our General Statutes by the General Assembly, to perform an immediate investigation about coverage and make a determination. But instead, what they did was make judicial admissions that she wasn't insured. They allowed her to proceed for 20 months as an insured under the contract. They paid her $5,000 in benefits that she cannot receive if she's not an insured. They agreed to arbitrate which she cannot have a right to do if she's not an insured. And then four weeks before the summary proceeding, they ask her questions in this examination under oath, and certain responses that they have cherry-picked from that examination are the predicate for this attack on coverage. And so to answer your question, yes, the type of proceeding where she was under oath answering questions put her in no position to appreciate that 19 days before the arbitration, they would sue her and say she's not a beneficiary under the policy. So for example, <clears throat> the only exchange in this case where they ask Ms. Herring about where she lived, this is the only exchange, is on page 88 of the record and page 14 of her examination. And you said you lived at the Young Lane address on and off for the last five years. That's her father's residence. Answer, yes, sir. Where else were you? Answer, I was actually staying in between my mom and dad, and I was pretty much my mom and dad. Some more details. How much time did you spend with your mother? Saw her a couple times a week. When did that start? I've always done that. <clears throat> How many times a month would you say? Just in 2019 you were with her. I don't know, a lot. People have different definitions of a lot, and she goes on, and this is where... Four months out of the year I stay with my mother. A third of the calendar year. Did you have a room at your mother's house? Yes. Is um, is getting at is just accepting all of that true. You you have a great case in front of the jury. But it would be reasonable for those twelve jurors to hear the statement, yeah, I'm a resident of that household. I stay there four months a year. I don't have any clothes there and say, this person's a liar. They just visit with the mom, but they live with the, their residence is with the dad. That, that is possible because that there's enough conflicting between the statements about, I, you know, it's my resident, I live there and all that and not having any clothes and the other things the dissent was giving. So I guess my question to you is what's wrong with the dissent's view on that, that because we're just using the ordinary meaning of reside in your mother's household, that ordinary people hearing some of these facts are gonna say, I don't believe this, the testimony the affidavit. Uh, your Honor, the dissent draws on several specific examples, all of which are either not correct based on the record or an interpretation of case law that actually, and I'll point out in a moment, is, is simply factually incorrect. 
um, for example, the, the dissent says that um, sharing clothes with her mother, and, and again, I would, I would just state, she does say that she keeps clothes there. She affirmatively responds yes. Then she goes on to qualify that sometimes she shares them with her mother. I don't think that's a credibility issue. That's simply a detail. Um, the dissent takes direct issue with another exchange that follows shortly after what I just recited, which was when counsel asks Ms. Herring, you said your father provided assistance financially. Did your mother as well? The response to that was, my mom is on disability. That's not no. They asked no follow-up questions. They didn't say, well, your mother is on disability, but does she support you personally in this mental health crisis that you've experienced since your adult life? Do you rely on her emotionally and spiritually? They didn't ask any of that. And that's their examination to ask the questions, which is why I point out they want, to, they want this appeal to rise on the portions of this examination that they approve of, but not the portions of this examination that conclusively establish that she was a resident of her mother's household. And they can't have it both ways. And it was their questions. They don't follow up. Other than to ask how long has she been disabled, to which she says, my whole life, meaning this lady's whole life, her mother has been disabled. So there, there's nothing to infer there that, well, two years ago, when mom got on disability, you didn't you know, live with her anymore. There's nothing to infer there. And then to But I guess, you know, I'm yeah. trying to understand what the dissent's logic here. And my, what I'm seeing the dissent doing is just applying <coughs> the, the summary judgment standard and saying, for example, with the clothing, what is the reasonable inference in the light most favorable to the non-moving party? And it would be that those responses mean my clothes are at my dad's place. And that, a reasonable jury could say, means you visit your mom, but you live with your dad. And, uh, and I understand that you're saying, but there's so much evidence that that's not true. But that, we see that all the time in summary judgment, and it still goes to the jury. So what in this case is so different that this is the one case where we just say, you know what, your argument's better than their argument, so no, you know, no jury trial in this case. Why is this so special? Well, Your Honor, the, the dissent, if, if, the, if the, the, the question about the clothes created a genuine issue of material fact, which I think would be the ultimate conclusion you'd have to make in order to use that to send this down for a jury trial, if that were the case, then yes. But I argue that, as the Court of Appeals majority said, even assuming, even setting aside the discussion about where my clothes are at my mother's house, that's not a genuine issue of fact to determine residency. We, we should not have a jury trial about that particular detail. The, in fact, the only inconsistency that you can really point to in this case at all that the dissent addresses is she says in her examination under oath, and this has already been discussed, whether she received mail at her mother's house, and she kind of equivocated and said no, then in the same breath, and again, this goes back to, this is their examination, it's their questions. I can't ask her at the end, Ms. Herring, remember when you said you didn't receive mail at your mother's house? Okay, didn't you receive a $5,000 check from this insurance company at your mother's house? Yes, did, I don't get to do that. So again, this is their questions. Then she goes on in the same breath as Justice Riggs pointed out and is asked whether she had a cell phone and was asked where the bills and the records go and she said, my mother's house. So in the same breath, she says she doesn't give mail, get mail, she, she gives an example of how she does. 
so she wasn't obviously in a position to appreciate again that this carrier was going to essentially rip the rug out from under her on coverage nineteen days before the arbitration she was not in a position to to know that that matters not because i'm arguing that you shouldn't take her answers as they are not not because of that but because in these cases this insurance carrier has a duty of good faith and fair dealing the general assembly has established that they will not get up well i predict that in rebuttal they will not come up here and tell you that a first party underinsured motorist carrier does not have a duty of good faith in investigating these claims and making prompt determinations of coverage I, I, I do not predict they'll get up here and say that they can do whatever they want as if some third as, as in a third party scenario they are under statutory obligations uh, again I won't belabor it today but in our brief chapter 58 of the general statutes the General Assembly has determined what constitutes unfair and deceptive trade practices by the insurance industry is there, um, yeah. sorry, is there a line where at some point recognizing that um, disputes and, and credibility should go to the jury, is there a line where the argument about credibility isn't tenable anymore? And can you make the strongest argument and point us to the strongest cases to say, well, you know, there's no actual evidence except the other side says, there's no evidence contradicting my client, but the other side says she's a liar. Where's the line where we say this is the kind of or the quantum of evidence that you have to have to really call into question credibility? Well, I, in, in this case, Your Honor, it, it, when it was briefly mentioned before about what, what are they going to bring to this trial that they now want on residency to refute the evidence? What is going to be the competing evidence? What will it be? And, and, and before I could even cite authority, I couldn't even cite to you and neither could they what their evidence would be to the contrary. And even if, assuming, which I, which I argue is, is not appropriate, but even if this characterization by the dissent of these self-serving affidavits by her stepfather and her mother, who are the named insureds on this policy, there's also an affidavit by her biological father, who's not in this case at all, who says, yes, she lives with me, but she also lives with her mother. They didn't ask him any questions. They didn't take his deposition. He submitted an affidavit in support of that summary judgment. So, so all of, none of that evidence is refuted, none of it. And, and there's no even forecast of evidence to, to show a jury to call into question her credibility other than maybe she did or not receive mail at a certain frequency and that is not a material fact. Well, I think, I feel like I'm trekking down a road I've already gone down here, but what I, understood the dissent to be saying is that at that trial, what will happen is when she testifies that she resides in her mother's household, she lives there four months out of the year, she considers it a residence, that what would happen is uh, the first series of questions would be, where's your driver's license? Where's your mail? All those sorts of things would go over. And then most importantly, they would go to the testimony about things like clothes and say, what did you mean by this? And their plan is, to have the jury look into her eyes during all of that testimony and then go back there and say, is she telling the truth or not? Does she just visit her mom if she really lives with her dad or not? And their argument is, we forecast enough evidence now, uh, you know, with the favorable standard of review that we have, the party opposing summary judgment, to say, let the jury make that decision and don't take it away from the jury. And, and I, and, but I, I gather from your answer to Justice Riggs' point, what you're saying is there, 
there's not enough evidence in this case that directly contradicts the sworn testimony in the way that is required under the hypotheticals I give you. So what you're saying is you can look at these as maybe she's a little inconsistent, but it's just not enough to say we, we have a jury trial on the question. That's, that's your argument? Your Honor, not, not only is there not enough evidence, there's no evidence. Un unless we want to have a jury trial on the fact as to the frequency of mail she receives in her mother's house, then it would not, it would not apply to, this, to the merits of this case because it doesn't create a genuine issue of fact. The dissent points out that um, she used her father's address for her driver's license, her voter registration, her bank statements, her car title, and all other mail uh, other than the check that she received. Uh, why could a jury not look at those facts and determine that uh, if she has indicated that all those are her address, uh, why could they not determine that that's in fact her address? Your Honor, because this court and the Court of Appeals has never said or held that those facts alone, in other words, what you list on government documents, for example, are exclusive with respect to the interpretation of the UIM residency clause in an insurance contract. Well, I'm, no I'm not asking exclusive. I'm asking why doesn't that, why don't those facts create a genuine issue of material fact that if believed by the jury as they uh, observe um, your client testify, and they weigh, here's her testimony. She says she goes to her mother's house and is there several times a week, uh, the close part, but she has already and clearly stated uh, her address for uh, the so many of the important decisions of life. Why is that not a genuine issue of material fact of residence? Because, Your Honor, Ms. Herring doesn't dispute any of the things that that Your Honor just recited. She agrees there's no, there's no dispute as to the fact uh, of the address that her driver's license says. There's no dispute in this case as to what her voter registration address is. She agrees with all of that. She's never disagreed. What she has said is that the interpretation of the law as to those agreed upon facts does not preclude her from also being a resident of her mother's household because and this will dovetail into the most important authority that we haven't discussed yet, is the Martin versus North Carolina Farm Bureau case, which only three years ago, this court did a comprehensive review of what the law in this state is on residency interpretations in UIM contracts. It's the most important case from this court on this issue. And the most important part of that most important case is that the threshold inquiry in that case, this court did a comprehensive analysis of all of its authority on this issue. And the threshold inquiry that it concluded overwhelmingly was these are a fact-specific, highly circumstantial analysis, these UIM residency cases. However, the thread that binds them all together is that the claimant, the individual claiming residency, must have lived in the dwelling for a meaningful period of time. That's the most important part of that holding, I would argue to you. If I could <clears throat> follow up on, on the Chief Justice's question, one thing I'm struggling with here, and I think Justice Steets has also gotten at this point, is 
Um, is there enough here that a reasonable jury could could conclude that the claim by Ms. Herring to reside uh, with her mother roughly four months out of a year is exaggerated? No, Your Honor. They're, they couldn't because there's no conflicting evidence. There's only Ms. Herring's own testimony. But often, often in the context of, say, when you're impeaching a witness, you, you're not in, you, you're not directly contradicting the witness's testimony. You're pointing to other things that you argue uh, should lead the jury to question uh, the witness's integrity. And so how is this not that kind of situation? Your Honor, I'm aware of nothing in the record in this case that would be used on cross-examination of Ms. Herring at trial to question her integrity. So your position is uh, summary judgment was appropriate because there was no inconsistency. That's correct, Your Honor. If we think there was inconsistency, would, you, would your position then be that, yes, this, there were issues, genuine issues of material fact, and summary judgment was inappropriate? Only if the court found inconsistency with respect to a material fact in the case. What if we say uh, that the inconsistencies raise, as using the kid language, more than a latent doubt about credibility? Yes, Your Honor, if that is the holding of the court, then, then, then that would be the result. Um, I could only argue that it's not, in the, it's not supported by the record or the facts in this case. Um, that, is, that would be the correct conclusion of law if this court were to find that. Okay. Um, Thank you. The, the, the dissent, uh, well, let me point out a, a, a couple of inconsistencies because they were discussed from the bench. Um, the counsel stated to the court, we, we didn't know anything about her dependency on her parents and this mental health issue until we got the affidavits. And Justice Newby earlier said, well, we didn't know any about this until we got the affidavits, and so that was the first time it created fact. That's not correct. That's not correct. Page 28 of her examination under oath, page 102 and 103 of the record, Miss Herring, in response to their questions, not only described her crippling anxiety that she's had since she was a minor child, she lists four medications that she's been on her entire adult life because of that diagnosis. And then on the same page, she goes on to reference her admission as an inpatient to both UNC and Holly Hill, which is a known mental facility in this state. So their representation that they didn't know that until the affidavits is not correct. <clears throat> the dissent and the Bruton case I would argue the entire authority for the dissent, uh, other than its issues of credibility, is the Bruton case. The dissent makes a critical error in its review and analysis of that case. The Bruton case was a two-page opinion by the Court of Appeals that's never been cited or adopted by this court ever. But setting that aside, the facts of that case were simple. An adult man owned his own mobile home and lived in it with his girlfriend. He got injured, he wanted underinsured motorist coverage from his father's household because he had visits with his father. The Court of Appeals, the trial court said no, the Court of Appeals said no. The dissent cites that case and its recitation of the facts, it says that that individual lived in his girlfriend's home. That's the dissent's recitation of that facts. Say so this case applies because this man lived with his girlfriend. That wasn't, those weren't the facts of that case. So. 
that is a critical mistake in the dissents analysis because in this case under the unique circumstances present here we have an adult who was dependent on both parents and lived in both households and there's ample evidence in the record to show why she had that dependence why this is a unique case it doesn't create any new law but she had that and needed that dependence the Bruton case is completely not analogous and the dissents description of it is incorrect and it's incorrect on a material fact he had his own place his own residence he invited his girlfriend to live there and supported her then he went and sought coverage from his dad's house that's not analogous to this case and the dissent heavily relies on it so in conclusion your honors again I would urge this court to affirm simply affirm the Court of Appeals majority opinion on the merits thank you Thank you, Counsel. Rebuttal. Uh, thank you, Honors. In the appeal to the Court of Appeals on page 233 of the record, Farm Bureau not only appealed the denial of its motion for summary judgment, but the granting of the plaintiff's motion, I'm sorry, of the defendant's motion for summary judgment. So there was, there was a total appeal. And, and Mr. Chief Justice had it correct when he said that when the motion for summary judgment was filed by Farm Bureau, the affidavits had not been presented yet. And so in, based on its reading of the Bruton case, there were no issues of genuine material fact in dispute. Can I just clarify though, I'm looking at footnote four in your brief before us and you say, um, you say to be clear, plaintiff appellant does not believe that there are any issues of material fact in dispute in the sense that it is clear that Cassie Harry was not a resident of her mother's household at the time of the accident. So, at least in your written submission to us, you're suggesting that there, there aren't any issues. Well, we think if you look at the Bruton case, then that's a correct statement. Because in Bruton, all of that, Mr. Bruton's personal possessions were at one residence, and he was claiming another location as his residence for purposes of insurance coverage. And in Bruton, he represented to the world that he lived at one address for everything but when he was trying to get coverage. So in that context is why that statement and that argument was made in, in the footnote. So we don't believe that's inconsistent because that's what we have in this case. To the world, Cassie Herring said she lived in Wendell, North Carolina for everything, everything that's important in life with the exception of trying to get coverage under the Farm Bureau policy of her mother. But as, as the dissent noted, and this court has asked about, we believe that, that there are questions of genuine issues of material fact in dispute if Bruton is not controlling based on the testimony that can only be decided by the fact finder and not by a trial judge. 
Thank you. Thank you, Council. Thank you to both.